cultural history of the cubes that make your summer drinks shimmer. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, June 6th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, from well-toned ice delivery men to the first air conditioner in a bedpan, a new book reveals the hidden secrets of ice and how it changed our economy as well as our cocktails. We'll talk with the author a bit later in the hour. We get to know the new dean of the Beacom School of Business at the University of South Dakota. A play explores the doctrine of discovery and the harm it continues to inflict today. Plus, the shrinks are here, and that's a wrap. We're joined by the hosts of Shrink Wrap, the podcast out of Aberdeen, where we give mental health conversations the respect they deserve. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. Well, June is a lovely time for a bike ride. Just ask more than 300 cyclists who are currently on the ride across South Dakota tour. Casey Abbott is the primary founder and tour director of Ride Across South Dakota. He joins me now from the tour on the phone. Casey, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us on. All right. I just drove across the state this weekend and I saw lots of small towns who had signs up welcoming cyclists. Tell us a little bit about RASDAQ. Yeah. Um, well, as you were mentioning, we uh, got started uh, 11 years ago and, and this is our 10th tour. And, and uh, we think South Dakota is a, a great state to see via a bicycle and and uh, our ride has been growing every year, and we've had record registration this year. Wow. Well, it is beautiful right now. Things are green. Um, the flowers are blossoming in ditches across the state. Why take this ride at that pace? Why ride across the state? What's in it for the riders? Well, you know, things look a lot different at 15 miles per hour as, <laughs> as com compared to 80. And, uh, you know, when you can, uh, you know, hear the meadowlarks, you can smell the freshly cut hay, you know, as you're bicycling through all the uh, infinite variety of scenery that South Dakota offers. It's just, uh, it's a great experience. And, and, uh, uh, and it does help, like out here in the hills, uh, the country looks great. They've had quite a quite a bit of rain and and uh you know so that that certainly helps as well yeah so where is the where are the riders they'll go together are they at a certain spot now or is it spread out tell us a little bit about the day-to-day -day experience of riding yeah uh, like today we started in hot springs and we tell people to not leave before six o'clock but they need to to take off by seven thirty. uh uh and you know they'll ride at different uh, paces, so they they get pretty scattered out. We do have cutoffs where you know uh, pushing people, uh, uh, you know, from the rear. It kind of reminds me of my days of working on the ranch where we're we're herding cattle, and <laughs> as the day goes on, they get more and more scattered out. And <laughs> this this works the same way. And but uh, uh, today we're finishing up in Custer, and I'd say we got probably. Oh, maybe 25% of the bicyclists in. The rest of them are still out enjoying uh, the beautiful Custer State Park. 
Yeah, tell me a little bit about volunteer support and what that means for the riders as well. Oh, it's it's huge. Uh, you know, we uh, well, of course, we're all a volunteer organization. We probably have thirty thirty five volunteers, uh, and we're raising money to support bicycle tourism. But also, the rest stops that we line up every ten to fifteen miles are typically done by church groups, uh, basketball teams, the, the breakfast, the, the lunches, dinners are often a fundraiser. Uh, uh, I know uh, the Spearfish basketball team did breakfast. Uh, I think we got a 4-H group uh, doing breakfast for us here at the Custer High School tomorrow morning. So uh, uh, if it wasn't for all these groups coming out, uh, we couldn't do it. And we kind of joke that we're like a traveling fundraiser. <laughs> So there's, uh, you know, 300 registered riders from 10 states and from Canada. Actually, we've mm-hmm. got 24 states represented uh-huh. in Canada. And uh, so, yeah, uh, people come a long ways to, uh, to uh, see South Dakota by a bicycle. All right. So let's talk safety. If you're not on that bike and you're driving across the state right now, what are you looking out for? Well, one thing we do, we put up a lot of signs to let people know that, uh, you know, bicycles are on the road and and uh, some of them just say caution bicyclists ahead. Others remind bicyclists, or I mean motorists, that uh, it's six foot is the law, that when people are traveling at highway speeds, they need to give bicyclists uh, at least six foot when they, when they pass them. So... Yeah. You know, you know, we also try to get some educational messages out there. Yeah. I bet you have some good stories from the road. Uh, share something with me about these intrepid, <laughs> this intrepid journey. Um, actually, I'll, I'll talk uh, uh, just this morning. Uh, it shows what small towns can do. We're in Hot Springs. Yeah. And we get a call about 830 last night that, the person that was going to head up the uh, the catering for the breakfast uh, uh, had a uh, emergency and was not going to be able to do it. And so I'm thinking, how are we going to get 300 bicyclists fed this morning? And uh, I, I called the local subway, <laughs> and uh, they brought in 125 uh, sandwiches by 5:30 this morning. Uh, the local two local shops, the one normally opens at 5:30, but they had all their employees show up early to handle the rush of bicyclists. And in another shop that across the street from them, uh, they opened uh, an hour early to help make sure that we were able to get 300 bicyclists uh, fueled up and ready for uh, uh, their adventures in Custer State Park. But just a, a small town, <laughs> you know. <laughs> With such short notice to pull that off, it, it, it you know, I, I wasn't surprised, but you, you don't see that in a lot of places. It was just pretty yeah. amazing. And actually, the girls that did the subway thing were just out of college, and the main management, uh, their vacation in Europe, so these <laughs> young girls oh. on their own managed to <laughs> make 125 sandwiches. Uh, uh, and deliver them by 5.30 in the morning. 
I love it. Way to go, Hot Springs. All right, Casey Abbott. Way to primary. go, Hot Springs Subway. <laughs> Way to go, shout out. Casey Abbott is primary founder and tour director of Ride Across South Dakota. Thanks so much. Be safe. Thanks a lot. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A months-long search has reached a successful conclusion. There is a new dean of the Beacom School of Business at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. It was a national search. It began in January of this year, and it led to the identification of four qualified final candidates. Of those four, Dr. Tim O'Keefe emerged as the clear choice. Dr. O'Keefe will begin as new dean on June 22nd, but he has graciously agreed to join us now on the phone. Tim O'Keefe, welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's entirely my pleasure. We were just telling a story. I'm not sure if you heard it uh, before the break about a, a subway in Hot Springs, South Dakota, where the employees showed up to bring 300 sandwiches at the last minute to cyclists who were riding across the state. And if that isn't a small town business success story, I'm not sure what is what draws you to business education um, as you move to this uh, new position as dean? I, I, uh, yeah, I did hear that story. It's a mm-hmm. wonderful story, and that's why we love small towns. I, 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 I drove forty miles one way to work for eighteen years uh, to a town of fifty thousand, which is still a small town, but so that I could raise my kids with my wife uh, in the town of twenty five hundred. So. Yeah. I fully understand the advantages and, and, and wonders of living in small-town America. Uh, I've been a business educator since I was 23 years old. I, it, long story how that happened to me at such a young age, but it's, it's been my passion uh, for my entire adult life. And uh, I, I, I fully uh, embrace the idea that, uh, that uh, the world's most difficult things are solved by creating profitable businesses that address them. And uh, and that nothing really happens, for example, in life uh, unless until it's ended. So uh, I think it's an incredibly important uh, topic to teach people uh, so that they they can enter the work world and the business world educated and, and ready to be productive and contribute. You have a strong track record of growth and retention. How do you invite young people? into business education and really keep them engaged in ways that lead to, you know, graduation rates and, you know, placement in, you know, either as an entrepreneur or, you know, coming up with the next big idea or just, you know, moving into current businesses in in the state. How how do you light that spark? Uh, That spark is, it oftentimes exists for students before they arrive at the university. Uh, but for those for whom that spark uh, is just an ember and, and we and we nurse that ember into a spark and then eventually a fire, uh, it's a function of uh, making business education available uh, in a way that's approachable for everyone. Uh, and, and this is an area where I think a lot of universities can improve. And uh, there's there's structural reasons, there's curricular reasons why, Sometimes making that shift is is difficult, and I've developed an affinity over the course of my career for addressing, identifying, and addressing those those issues. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, my background is computer information systems, and uh, 
Uh, I'm rather passionate about technology, and uh, I, I, many students come to us from high school now quite versant in that technology, and, and they want to come to the university in their passion. And, and many uh, universities require students to complete a lot of ex uh, general education before they start taking courses in their major, and that's true of colleges of businesses in particular. So all of a sudden you get a student at your university who wants to be a computer information systems major, and we say, great, we're glad you're here. See you in your junior year. Mm -hmm. That doesn't retain students, and it doesn't continue to, to uh, flam, fan the flames of, of, of that passion that they have. So those are structural issues. Those kinds of things can be dealt with uh, at the administrative level working with the faculty, and that's what I really love to do. Yeah. Um, a little bit later in this hour, we're going to have a conversation about the ice business historically with a new author. And <laughs> as I was reading that, I mean, there's some dirty pool during the Industrial Revolution with uh, businesses yeah. really doing things that are definitely unethical. And of course, in mm -hmm. our day and age, we have seen from Facebook to, you know, other uh, industries when they don't have integrity, ethics and honesty at the core mm -hmm. of what they do, bad things happen to all of us, yep. but to the bottom line yep. of the company as well. What is the role of integrity, ethics, and just thinking about um, more than just the bottom line and how your business impacts people? Why does that matter now? I think it matters always. Uh, I think now it's, it's important. Uh, but it's also it's just imp been important throughout history, and our failings uh, as human beings uh, is is that uh, you know we all have an inherent amount of desire for uh, for money, and and that can get out of control. Uh, and I think I think the important part of a responsible business education is that in of ethics to the curriculum. And to be able to look at the the complexity that actually represents ethics, because what's ethical from one perspective might not be ethical from another. Example would we've just been talking with Dr. Tim O'Keefe. Um, I was looking forward to hearing that example, but we're going to go ahead and, and move on a bit with the show. He is, if you didn't hear the beginning of that conversation, the new dean of the Beacom School of Business at the University of South Dakota. We just lost our connection there. So we're going to take a break. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, an Aberdeen podcast wants you to value your mental health just as much as you do your physical health. Shrink Wrap, the podcast launched in 2021. It's the brainchild of Fran Sippel and Becky Cook. They host the podcast together, and they will also serve as keynote speakers at Augustana University's Lighting the Way Autism Conference. That's a two-day conference that kicks off tomorrow and Thursday in Sioux Falls. Dr. Sippel and Becky are with me now from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio at Northern State University in Aberdeen. Um, Fran Sippel, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it very much. Becky Cook, thanks as well. Yes, thank you, Lori. We appreciate you having us. I've been listening to the podcast, and now I hear your voices in my ear, and I'm like <laughs> fangirling, too. <It's> all 
we're all together, and I have no idea what's about to happen next on the radio. But oh, no, you don't. Do you? No, you don't. I would get off immediately yeah. if I were you. Um, do you. Do you have your resume spiffed up, Lori? That's the question. I do. <laughs> Let's talk about your mental load uh, 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 podcast, and then we'll talk about my resume. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, obviously, this is public radio, so we're not going to swear. But I do want to start with the tone. Lori, I did tell Fran that before we got started. (laughs) I want to start with the tone of the podcast, because this is um, about mental health, and it is, um, you know, raw and honest and funny. And, you know, you're going to drop some F-bombs here and there on the podcast, and that adds to the tone of what you're doing. So, Dr. Fran, tell me a little bit about (laughs) bringing your whole self to that podcast and, you know, kicking off your shoes a little bit and saying, let's get real. I think it's necessary, and really it's a snapshot into therapy with me. Um, I'm real in therapy, and I think that's what creates a relationship that's genuine and um, relatable, where someone has permission to be honest. And we're all human, and we all have our flaws, and we want mental health to be relatable and funny, and we want to take the shame out of it. Enough of that. Yeah. Um, Becky, you twisted Fran's arm to do this. Tell me a little bit about (laughs) your relationship with Fran and why you wanted to get into podcasting. So it's really funny in a way. Um, I had known of Fran for quite a few years just by reputation um, as being an outstanding uh, child and adolescent therapist. And then um, I was, had the opportunity to join their practice. And, um, and then COVID hit a few years later. And um, I had this idea like we have to talk about mental health. We just have to. Because I didn't think anybody, including therapists, were doing the greatest job of that. And I knew um, there was only one person I wanted to do this with. And that was where we could laugh together and cry together and let people know that we're all healthy sometimes and we're all struggling sometimes. And so I did a little pitch to Fran and had to pour a glass of wine and talk her into it. But here we are three seasons later. (laughs) Right. It's crazy. I didn't even know what a podcast was. Honestly, Lori, I seriously had never listened to one. I was still trying to figure out iPads and iPods. So podcasts were like beyond my thing. (laughs) Well, she's grown up so fast. I'm a big girl now. (laughs) And you talk about uh, big topics um, and what, you know, I was looking divorce. And this mm-hmm. is one of the things that I think is kind of funny because to me it's not hard to talk about divorce because I am divorced. And then every once in a while you come up against somebody and it is like they're in divorce. You know, yeah. they're going to whisper it like it's the world's worst thing. And with all respect to, you know, people who are just going through it, sometimes I can forget because I'm on the healthy side of it. Um, right. When you pick topics like that, you know, <clears throat> what does it mean to be transgender? What does it mean to be divorced? What does it mean to be uh, burned out? Um, how do you come up with your topic ideas and, and how do you plan out where you're going to go during the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> oh, Lori. I'm <laughs> laughing. Lori. I am totally laughing because I have to run it by Becky because I'm a nerd and I love writing and researching. So yeah. I'll come up with some weird topics just like, I don't know, I'm reading Psychotherapy Networker and it's like, oh, we should talk about this. Yeah. And Becky's like, yeah, only two listeners would relate to that. <laughs> so that would be a no. But I find it fascinating. So it's a, it's definitely a duo. Um, yes. And then I do the writing and research. But Becky, when we do presentations, she is a phenomenal 
What do you call that when you put it in that pretty stuff? Oh, put it in a PowerPoint? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I have mad PowerPoint See, skills. See, she really does. And so we the are a great team. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just, we have a natural chemistry and we play off each other really, yeah. really yeah. well. And it's it's not anything I don't think we could have ever worked to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that was just there. And so I'm, I'm super grateful for that and for Fran. Me too, Becky Boo. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> do you get feedback from people who say, thank you, that changed my life. Thank you, I called a therapist. Or thank you, this reframed something for me. We have had that feedback and it's... Yeah. I don't even I don't I can't even think of the word for it because it's it's everything we've wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's what we want. Right. If just yeah. one person listens to us and goes, maybe therapy won't be so bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the podcast is not therapy. We're not doing therapy right now. Mm-hmm. But no. In the spirit of uh, the podcast, um, what's going on today? I can't tell you how many times just this week alone, and it's Tuesday. <laughs> People have said, everybody's crazy right now in this Mm -hmm. sort of um, nod to, and not very polite nod, really, but a nod to the stress that we're seeing. It's like we came crashing back from the pandemic and we forgot any lesson that we learned during that time about, you know, slowing down or or looking out for one another. That's a really good point, Lori. Yeah, Yeah. I do. I, you know what? Here's my take on it. I just think that blame it on the algorithms or whatever it is, the robots in the sky. We have never been such a divided nation and people. And people are very, very, um, I don't know, just kind of waiting for someone else to say something they disagree with. And part of what we're trying to do is Bring people together. Just be mm-hmm. kind. Be accepting. Be not judgment judgmental. Talk to someone with the goal of actually trying to learn something instead of trying to get your opinion and viewpoint across. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah. Just can, honestly listening. Can therapy think, help? Can therapy help with? I am just stressed out because the world is stressful. I'm stressed out yes. because of politics. I'm stressed out because of an election. Do people yes. go to a therapist to try to figure out how to navigate the well, they're me- not media say that. landscape? Yeah, okay. But they will yeah. show up and they'll say like, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out. And that's one of the first things we'll ask them. Like, how often are you watching the news? Um, yeah. How often are you on your, your phone doom scrolling? Because um, those might be, that might be time better spent doing yeah. something else. And then it's that control what you can control and let the rest go. You know, is it really worth getting worked up over? Probably not. Right. Um, Fran, let's talk about your mother. <laughs> oh, oh, no. No, please don't do that because if this ever gets back to her, I am seriously going to have to fake my own death. So, um, no, my mom, you know what? My mom and I have a relationship that is wonderful long distance. I respect my mother. My mother is a classic Italian mama. And um, she made me who I am. She really did. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember growing up, she had this little poster on my wall. Don't marry a doctor, be a doctor. <laughs> so I have to give the woman props. She yeah. really valued education and made me feel like I could do what I wanted to do. And I did. Yeah. And I have to give her some credit for that. What so I, if you want the crazy mom stories, you have to listen to the podcast. Right. Podcast. That is right. A, what I really want to talk about is our mothers, our families. The Mm -hmm. fact that we, you know, in South Dakota, we're often very connected to our families. We're often, um, you know, still have a lot of contact with our families. And those can be difficult relationships. Um, Maybe you just set the example there, Fran, by saying, think about the things that your your parents 
gave you, not just about the things that they do that maybe drive you a little crazy. Right. And uh, one of the greatest lessons I learned is that we teach our kids we teach them either what to do or what not to do. And mm-hmm. sometimes the most profound lessons and the most um, the ones that stick mm-hmm. are the ones of teaching them what not to do. So thank your teachers, whether you like them or not, you are learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, Becky, what's coming up on the podcast that people want to tune into? Like what are some of the, you know, the popular topics that you return to again and again that listeners maybe can't get enough of? Well, we're, we were just talking before we went on the air. We've got to do our season four planning session. Yeah. Um, so we'll start recording again in August. We definitely want to do some more live recordings. We had a lot of fun doing that mm-hmm. um, with our producer Brody at the Market on the Plaza. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just a great time. And we did one at Northern State University and, and would definitely want to do that again, too. Um, as far as topics, I can't even think, Fran. Well, one the- I asked you about a couple of days ago, and I got crickets. Oh, I yeah. said, "What do you think about friends with benefits?" Oh, because, yeah. yeah, because some of them, I mean, we, they're like specifically mental health, but some of them are kind of a twist. But like sex with or friends with benefits, there are mental health aspects to that, good there and definitely bad. Definitely are. Yeah. No, I responded in my head. I'm sorry you didn't get okay, that. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I, I don't think it's have a great ESP, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love that. <laughs> Welcome to the inner workings of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> shrink off the podcast. There went the curtain. <laughs> I feel like uh, how much of this ge- is generational too. When you mentioned Northern State University students, you know, mm-hmm. friends with benefits means something different to me than it does ah. to a college student. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're they, thinking fundraising. How young are you, Lori? Yeah, they just <laughs> not not young. <laughs> they just call that dating, you know? So yeah. the things oh. that things that I, you know, in, in my generation would be like, "Oh my gosh, we would not be caught dead doing that." You know, young people are like, no, this is actually healthy. It's how much can we learn from um, young people today, especially around the ideas of talking about mental health and normalizing it? Because it seems to me, at least on the outside, that uh, young people today are more likely to embrace therapy, to embrace, um, you know, self-care in their lives than maybe when I was growing up as a Gen Xer. I would say they definitely are. And being the director of counseling at Northern right now, um, our students have, they've spearheaded campaigns saying that mental health is going to be uh, a priority yeah. on this campus. And, and we're not unique in that. There's, our, our youth are saying, no, enough. We want help. And I think that's so cool. Mm-hmm. They came through the pandemic and they will not be the same. Right. No, that is correct. And that can be a good thing. Talk about oh. um, trauma and growth after bad things happen to you. When you go through this process of whether it's, you know, reading a self-help book or talking to a friend or actually seeing a therapist or downloading a podcast and subscribing, um, what's on the other side of the hard work of therapy? I'm going to let you speak to that. I'm not even sure where my brain went with that. Yeah, I was giving you the look. I'm going to let you. Actually, where my brain went was your phrase, evolve or die. Mm. And so I think that's, you know, hopefully as as humans, we are constantly challenging ourselves. I like to think that I'm never going to be finished being a work in progress, if you will. And so I think you do the hard work. And I think there is um, calmness to that. Mm. Uh, One of the words that I use in therapy a lot is contentment. As, as humans, we often don't know what to do when we're content. 
Mm. So we're not super happy, but we're not super sad. And, and actually, that's a nice place to be. Mm-hmm. And so getting comfortable with that. And I guess if I just sum it up in a word, I would say contentment. Yeah. yeah. And trauma can be so many things. I mean, it can right. be yes. sexual yeah. abuse, but it could also be living through a pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. Trauma can be um, getting fired from a job. It can be a divorce. I mean, there's so many things that can trigger people. And so I think we as therapists, I mean, we take on a lot of that. We take those traumas on. We're empathetic. You know, that's Mm -hmm. why we go into this business. We have to be very careful about taking care of ourselves so we're not carrying that home because that's a lovely thing to serve for supper (laughs) with your family. Right? guys, mommy brought home vicarious trauma today. Yes. I saw an author who writes legal th- thrillers this weekend, and he said, and his main character has PTSD. He's an Afghanistan veteran. He said, um, you know, from personal experience as well as his own um, journey through the VA, um, he said, deal with mm-hmm. trauma or it will deal with you. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe that's a negative way to put it, but I sort of like contentment on the other end. Of, yeah, on the other end of that, but it's important. It's important work, and it can be life work. And yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know. I think that's a good point. And if you don't work through trauma or anything, like I had a mentor that said, if you don't take care of feelings, your feelings will take care of you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there you so go. Yeah. you can try to not acknowledge things. You can try to stuff it down. Um, which we always joke in the German heritage, just stuff it way, way down. And, <laughs> and then eat some mashed potatoes. And have some Fleischkekla and everything will be better. Right. Um, <laughs> Everything's fine but eventually, that, eventually that stuff comes back at you. Yeah. And so it's better just to roll with it, you know, as best you can in the moment. Yeah. All right. Well, in the moment is this show, Shrink Wrap the Podcast. Do you, uh, like, do you like what I did there, Laura? I You're love welcome. It. it was a nice roundup It's just there. lovely. It's just pretend it's on purpose, yeah. too. Eloquent eloquently done you can download that podcast pretty much anywhere you get your podcast i listen on apple it's at spotify and amazon podcast as well we've been talking with dr fran sipple and becky cook again shrink wrap the podcast they're going to be at the lighting the way autism conference at augustana as well i'm headed to aberdeen this fall so maybe we can meet in person but for now that'd be awesome (laughs) thanks so much for being here thank you Lori. have a good day you too Let's take a moment now for a driving force in lead history. She couldn't vote. She couldn't have her own bank account. But Phoebe Hurst was a powerful philanthropist and a multimillionaire. Phoebe was the wife of mining magnate George Hurst in the late 1800s. She shared her wealth with the city of Leed. She did that because it was home to one of her husband's mines, Homestake. Phoebe is of special interest to lead historian and tour guide Phyllis Fleming. Let's hear from Phyllis as she reflects on Phoebe Hurst's generosity and its impact on early lead. Lead has a fascinating history. I'm a part-time tour guide, okay? And I got into that mainly because of the history of this area. Lead was a mine. George Hurst came in, founded this mine, so this was always a company town. The history here, there's so much. Phoebe Hurst has to be one of my absolute favorite characters in the world. The woman, she married George Hurst when she was 19. George may have been 40. He wasn't real sure. She wrote a prenuptial agreement. Yes, ma'am, that is a true story. She wrote this prenuptial agreement because she said She had friends who married older men, 
the men died and the woman was left destitute. And that wasn't gonna happen to Phoebe. When George Hearst died, Phoebe Hearst inherited $20 million. Thank you very much. Phoebe couldn't vote, she couldn't own land. She had $20 million, who cared? And there's newspaper articles about Mrs. Hearst coming and they were having a tea or a, a reception for Mrs. Hurst. She came numerous times. Now Phoebe started the work on the Opera House. She started the free kindergarten here too, but she started the free Hurst Library. It had over 10,000 volumes. She picked out a lot of those. It also had foreign language newspapers and magazines because we're made up of a melting pot of people from Europe. That was free. This plunge, the swimming pool was free. The billiard rooms, the card rooms, the social rooms. The theater was a nickel, okay? Phoebe said, and I paraphrase this, but Phoebe said, if you don't have recreation, education, and socialization, you don't have a town. You can have a mine, George. And he had mines everywhere across the West but you don't have a town. So that's what she did. More in the moment is coming up after the break. A new theatrical production asks the question, what if the land you love was stolen? Plus a new cultural history of ice. It sizzles. You're on listener supported SDPB radio. Rural Life and History Reporting on SDPB is supported by Primrose Retirement Communities. PrimroseRetirement.com. This is Living. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A new play in Freeman, South Dakota is asking a big question. What if the land you love was stolen? We Own This Now is an original play premiering this Saturday at Pioneer Hall at Freeman Academy Campus, and it explores that question through historical documents, absurd situations, and extended metaphors, all with only two actors and a stage. Allison Cassell-Brookings is the playwright and joins me now on the phone. Allison, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Kind of messed up your here. name there, Brookings. <laughs> I think I think I said Brookings. I, I, I yeah. believe there's a Brookings in South Dakota. So. <laughs> I come by yeah. it honestly. Oh, I'm so sorry though. <laughs> I really, um, you know, this play explores the doctrine of discovery, which is this legal framework that um, ostensibly allowed taking of land. And I just want to know where the seed mm -hmm. of this idea came for you, because I think a lot of people wouldn't think of putting those two things together on stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the very first place this came from uh, when I was uh, a wee little undergrad um, at UW-Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I'm from, I was in a class um, on uh, indigenous people in the media uh, taught by an Ojibwe uh, professor. And that was kind of my first encounter with a lot of these ideas. Um, and I just remember feeling, you know, my, my family, one side came over to uh, North America on the Mayflower, literally on the Mayflower, and the other side came over shortly after. So I have no stories of where I'm from, anywhere beyond here. Mm -hmm. And uh, lo uh, looking at those questions of like, wow, the United States has 
broken treaties has has illegally um, displaced and um, subjugated indigenous people for a long time. And I just had this feeling of, well, I can't just leave. I have nowhere to go, nowhere that won't make someone else homeless. So what do I do? And I remember feeling kind of like closed down by that question. Um, and then a few years later, when I was in seminary, I started to uh, kind of encounter more more nuance and um, furthering um, some of these ideas. And I was going to be doing an internship with Ted Swartz, and I knew that I wanted to do who is a, a playwright and a comedian and a, a business owner, and he's uh, who I was interning with when I wrote the play. Yeah. And um, I knew that I wanted to somehow combine comedy with, like, big, important ideas because <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like that is the best way to communicate is uh, through comedy on stage uh, to gather people together, to feel big things, to see things, to hear a story together. And I was in a class. Um, Latin American uh, Christian history, and we had just studied a document called The Requirement, which was written by the Pope, which basically says um, it, it was a document that had to be read to Indigenous people, sometimes mm -hmm. just from the boat. Uh, maybe it didn't matter if anyone was there or not, it just had to be read at the land, <laughs> saying, hey, this is who we are, this is who Spain is, this is who the Pope is, um, we are coming here now, this is your chance to convert and not be killed. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll continue on. And I remember reading this document, and then a friend asked me if I wanted to write about the doctrine of discovery when I was interning with Ted. And that document, the requirement, popped into my head as like a fully formed sketch on stage. And I was just like, that is absurd. That yeah. is, I cannot think of anything funnier and more ridiculous than this piece of historic history. Um, and so I said, yes. And uh, that's a very long story. Of, um, I yeah, I love how in, excited to do this. In yeah. a few minutes, we're going to talk to an author and, in, and she writes a cultural history of ice. And in that, one of the things mm. that comes up is this this man who is trying to create ice, you know, not chop it from a lake. Well, then he's playing God. And that is sacrilegious. Mm. And so that also reminds me of your you know, this be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, mm -hmm. you know, do the, so mm -hmm. as a theologian, as someone who studied th theology and as a chaplain, that intersects with how we, how people then were thinking about land, mm -hmm. but what's the residual yeah. of that? That hasn't gone away there. That hasn't gone away yeah. in the mm -hmm. church. Yeah. And it, it comes out in the United States. It comes out in manifest destiny, this idea right. that, um, we have been given this land, which is quote unquote empty. Um, mm -hmm. One of the sketches in my play is called empty. And it's uh, looking at the, the, this view of land where land is not, is empty. It's not actually being used if it's not being built on it. Are you building farms? Are you fencing? Are you improving it? Quote unquote, which was a big part of like uh, land grant acts and a big part of um, the, the settling of Western United States um, by by European settlers. Um, and it's just this very different view of, of land and land use um, than a lot of other groups of people, particularly indigenous people in the United States, uh, see land, what the purpose of land is. They don't see the purpose as being this like progress, this growing um, and this, this building upon and occupying and subduing. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a, a, 
a meeting of some different ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. So important for the future, too, in an age of climate change. Mm, How yeah. do we imagine this and have, what's the role of art in that conversation, the role of mm-hmm. theater in this case, in that conversation yeah, to and, you? Yeah, and, and I think the role of theater is to, to, like I said earlier, gather people together to see something and to feel things and to think things and to have their mind uh, nudged along, if not changed. Um, that's what I think the role of art is. Yeah. Well, you can catch We Own This Now this Saturday at Pioneer Hall at Freeman Academy Campus. We've got more information uh, coming on our website at sdpb.org slash news. Allison Brookins, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. Well, this weekend I read one of those books you want to set down every 10 minutes and tell a friend about it, and the only reason you don't is because you also can't stop turning the pages. The topic of that book, The Cultural History of Ice. Author Amy Brady found a gap in our understanding of how ice changed America. Why hasn't anyone written this before? Perhaps it's because ice is everywhere now. It's in your freezer and the drinks you get at the restaurant and coolers at gas stations and grocery stores everywhere. But it has not always been that way. And the entrepreneurs behind making ice so popular did so by playing a little dirty. The book is called Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Amy Brady is executive director of Orion Magazine and co-editor of The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate, and she's with me now on the phone. Amy, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. There is so much in this book that um, you could just take to your next cocktail party and um, you will be the toast of the event because you have stories about ice. How did you come across this idea that there really wasn't a book like this when it seems like there's a book on everything right now, but no one had written a cultural history of ice yet? Surprisingly, nobody had. So uh, my realization that there was a gap in history uh, came a few years ago uh, during a brutal heat wave. Uh, I was visiting a local convenience store to try to cool down, (laughs) to soak in their air conditioning and fill a cup with ice for a nice cold drink. And as I was watching the cubes fall into the cup, I realized I hadn't thought twice about whether ice would even be available here. I just knew to go. And then I could also go down to my local grocery store and pick up a bag of ice there if I wanted to. Ice was everywhere. And when I had traveled uh, to other places around the world, that just wasn't the case. (laughs) If you tried to order ice in your water, you know, in some places in Europe, for example, um, you would get a look like something is growing out of your head. So I, you know, I went home and I tried to find a satisfactory answer to why are Americans so obsessed with ice? And I couldn't find one. So I decided I was going to try to answer that question myself. Yeah. Um, We have so many things to talk about, but I want to talk about the cover because there is uh, a steamy sort of smoldering ice man on the cover gazing (laughs) at you provocatively. And this is very much the, you know, when blocks of ice and chunks of ice are being delivered to housewives' uh, ice boxes, this has a tone to it that's a bit salacious. 
It is a Vesalicious, and um, there was a fear of salaciousness surrounding Icemen throughout the history of the ice industry. So Icemen were the people, as you said, who brought ice to a client's home and put the, uh, the ice into ice boxes. These men were strong, burly, masculine-looking men because they had to be. You know, these were 50-pound blocks of ice that they would have to pick up, sometimes two at a time, and carry them up six flights of stairs into their client's home. And so there was already just this kind of, um, you know, a, a romantic idea of the ice man. But what separated them from other delivery men of the time was that, say, the milkman or the, the uh, mailman, they left their deliveries outside the door. The iceman actually went into the home uh, where the housewife was often home alone while her husband was at work. And um, that just wasn't done you know, during the day. And so there was this nationwide anxiety around it. And when you go back and look at the popular culture of, say, the late 19th century and the early 20th century, there are all these songs about women uh, stealing um, a kiss from the Iceman or having an affair <laughs> with the Iceman. There's Valentine's Day cards with puns about the Iceman on them. It's it's such an amazing history. It's just fascinating. I want to jump in time a little bit because I do want to mention John Gorey because I was just talking to another guest about this idea that he's a, he's a physician. He's trying to heal patients. He wants to make ice instead of just purchase ice that has been chipped off a lake um, in northern uh, part of America at the time. And this, he does it, but it's blasphemy. Tell me why. Yeah. Yeah. So... This was a doctor, his name was John Gorey, uh, living in 1840s Apalachicola, Florida. And he wanted to cure his patients of yellow fever, which ravaged the American South every year. Doctors back then didn't know that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. All they knew was that it got worse in the summer during the hot months and then waned in the winter during the cold months. And so Gorey thought, well, maybe if I can get my patients' bodies to mimic the cycle of the seasons, I can cure them of yellow fever. But the only way he knew how to cool down their bodies was with ice. And ice didn't form naturally in that part of Florida, or at least very rarely. And ice shipped from the north was extremely expensive. So he thought he's going to have to figure out how to make it himself. So after years of trial and error, he finally landed on a prototype of a machine that could produce a lot of ice. And when he made the announcement to the world, he thought it would the response would be cries of joy and gratitude. And instead, it was met with cries of blasphemy, with people saying, how dare you, a mere man, try to create ice? Only God can create ice. <laughs> Well, wait for it because <laughs> because here it comes. <laughs> I want to jump ahead to like our contemporary time because you you know you say it doesn't uh, you know ice didn't occur naturally in his part of the world. You have a scene you know with Walden Pond saying you know the ice doesn't form on Walden Pond like it used to because of uh, man-made climate change, refrigeration, the future of ice. Um, in our last you know minute, what do you want to leave us with that is? Because um, this book is not just all fun stories. This is a, 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 a really important topic to our future, as you imagine what it would be like without this ice. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the history of ice has revolutionized how Americans think of cold. And so now we, we, we love it. So we've built electric refrigerators and air conditioners. And all of that cooling technology draws a lot of energy and spews up to 60 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year, leading to approximately 10% of all carbon emissions on Earth. That's a huge amount. And so, you know, ice uh, and by extension, refrigeration and air conditioning is really starting to take a toll on the planet. Um, but, you know, as I write in my book, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future because there are already many different types of technologies that are being studied and experimented with that could revolutionize refrigerators to make them much more energy efficient and to use far less potent greenhouse gases uh, in their systems. All we need to do is scale it up. Yeah. And if the history of the ice industry has taught me anything, <laughs> it's that people can learn to uh, use ice in dramatically different ways very, very quickly. The book is called Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks. It's a cool history of a hot commodity. The author is Amy Brady. I mean, it's the book of the summer right there. Amy, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow's Dakota Political Junkies. We'll talk about the debt ceiling and more. From all of us at SDPB Radio, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>